Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Hello and welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and today we're talking to two um, ITAM professionals uh, about the secondary software market and um, reselling software. We're going to speak to Christian Murphy, uh, Software Category Manager at CGI and also to Thomas O'Leary, CEO at Origina. And in this podcast, we're going to be digging into what exactly is secondary software, where can I go to find and trade second, second-hand software or uh, secondary use software, uh, some examples of s- secondary software in use, and um, the concept of yuppie, i.e. the terms uh, of uh, usage of when you're using secondary software. Uh, it's a it's a up and coming market, and uh, we're glad to shine a light on it. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. If there's any further questions around secondary software, then please give us a shout. Um, so let's dig into it. Christian, if I could ask you first, could you introduce yourselves to the listeners? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Christian Murphy. I'm a software category manager within the procurement organisation of CGI. Um, CGI is a large uh, outsourcing and IT services provider. So I'm, I, prior to working for CGI, I worked for, for Hewlett Packard, so I have quite uh, a lot of experience in buying software for large technology organizations. And so um, second-hand software has always been one of my interests. Um, besides my day job, I also blog uh, as regularly as the time permits at uh, a my blog, which is softwarespend.com, and uh, the issue of secondhand software is one that I've uh, also addressed in a couple of blog posts over at softwarespend.com. And you've joined us on the podcast before, so thank you for coming back. And uh, if in case you missed yeah, the, po- the you. In, in case you missed the previous podcast, uh, I recommend softwarespend.com. Go and listen to Christian's podcast. We also have um, Thomas O'Leary on the call from Origina. Thomas, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. And- Christian. Um, my name is uh, Thomas O'Leary. I'm uh, the CEO of uh, Origina. We are a um, European company with um, headquarters out of Dublin in Ireland, um, operations uh, across Europe and more recently in uh, Australia. Um, we specialize in the maintenance of uh, IBM software um, as an alternative to, to IBM. We're one of the leading providers in that, and um, we've uh, recognized a trend in the industry over the last number of years for IBM software as the products have got come to what we might call a twilight or sunset position, um, that many of the resources that uh, IBM use uh, already are available in the marketplace. And we have built a quite a unique business model, quite similar to how the open source community built and structured for enterprises. We've built a similar model for large IBM users, and uh, uh, we provide a very co- uh, cost-effective service uh, at a, uh, we like to believe, a better quality service to uh, those clients who are long-standing users of IBM software, and we give them an alternative, which I think is badly needed in the market. So the way that I sort of um, 
tried to understand your business was to compare you to Rimini Street, which is what a lot of um, our listeners might be familiar with. So you, you're you're a similar business model to Rimini Street, right? We do we do effectively a very similar service. Right. So that, so Rimini Street will go to market and advertise the fact that they'll offer the same contract for SAP and Oracle at fifty percent discount or something than your Oracle price. Yeah. Is, are you, is that a similar, without putting you on the spot for a quote, but are you, is that similar to sort of discount, ballpark figure? I, I, in practice, that tends to be where, where we often end up. Right. Um, uh, it's not our go-to-market, we don't go to market just with, with a pricing model, but obviously clearly it's uh, because of the It's way quite compelling. It is, of course. Well, we, our view in the market is that there is a lot of money tied up here uh, unnecessarily. Uh, particularly for products that are uh, have in many cases have limited development life cycles. I mean, if you look at IBM, IBM have uh, 2,000 products, 31,000 actually product codes, um, you know, over 200 ways of measuring the software. We're the only company in the world to do uh, almost 800 of those those 2,000 products. And I mean, pretty much any of the products that have been around for any length of time that don't run on the mainframe and are not new acquisitions by IBM, the chances are we maintain it. If you go to a website, you can pick and choose the 800 products. So we uh, we often end up in a position, yes, at significantly less and up to 50%, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on yeah. the situation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's too much money tied up in this area. What people want is they want value for money. But they also want a service. When when the resources are 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 being used out there in the marketplace by the manufacturers, and are not being delivered to them in a, in, in a cost-effective way, we believe we can do it far more cost-effectively. Uh, organizations do not need to change the software; they leave everything as is. We come in and we replace one piece of what IBM do, and we leave everything else in place. Okay. So the the topic of the podcast today is um, secondary. Uh, secondary market for software or second-hand software. Um, perhaps for the for the listeners not that are not aware um, of of the concept, what what what's your view, guys, of what what is second-hand software, and could you explain it to those that are, are perhaps not familiar? Yeah, sure, I can explain this uh, if you like, uh, Martin. So, um, second-hand software market in Europe was started really by um, uh, the case of use of the Oracle back in 2012 and uh, in actual fact the right existed for a lot longer and, and before that and there are um, actors on the market that have been selling software, second-hand software for prior to that court case but that court case really opened things up because it reinforced the rights that were already there under the software directive from 1991 and it um, it made it very clear that that's the way the courts in Europe are going to have to interpret any sales of second-hand software. So what, what that case did basically was it, um, it centred on uh, a concept called exhaustion or in the US they call that um, uh, the doctrine of first sale. And basically what it means is that um, the first sale of a software license um, by the software manufacturer or software publisher to a customer, once that first sale takes place, the right of the copyright holder to oppose any further sales is exhausted or is, evaporates, right? So they cannot use a contract 
to say that you're not allowed to f uh, sell sell your your license on further. Um, so that's basically what that 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 agreement did. Usoft was a secondhand software uh, vendor, so they were buying Oracle licenses and reselling them. Oracle didn't like that. They took Usoft to court. And Oracle argued that uh, the wording of their license agreement, which stated, uh, you know, the usual non-transferable, had the word non-transferable in the license grant, uh, and because of that, Oracle argued uh, Usoft was was not allowed to to sell on to other customers, um, and it had to remain the license had to remain with the original buyer of the software license, uh, and the it went up all the way up through the German courts and, and up to the European Court of Justice, which is the highest court in the European economic area. And the, the European Court of Justice said that that can't be uh, allowed. Uh, we, we, uh, we cannot allow software vendors to prevent the sale of licenses simply by calling them a license rather than uh, the usual concept of a product. So you can maybe compare it to the book market. I always like to compare it to the book market because it's a good analogy that people can understand. So you um, you buy a book and you read that book and once you're done with the book you can pass it on to a friend or even take it to a second-hand bookshop and sell it. Uh, you, you're not allowed to um, to to publish the contents of the book or read it out like we're uh, on, a, on a podcast such as we're doing now, you're not allowed to make that public on internet. All of these things you're not allowed to do, but you can simply take the, the book and sell it on to someone else. So that's what uh, the court uh, made possible through the judgment of Yusofi Oracle. Although I stress that that right did exist prior to Yusofi Oracle, but in Yusofi Oracle, the, uh, the European Court of Justice made that clear for uh, for everyone. And that ruling applies to everyone in the European economic area, which is basically um, all of the 28 EU members plus uh, Liechtenstein, Iceland, and another one, and, and which as, uh, as, as escapes me at the moment. Uh, Norway, I think. Norway, yeah. As a result of that, the there's... there's um it's almost uh, created a market for second-hand software brokers and directories and all this sort of thing. And you mentioned Usoft. There's uh, discount licensing in the UK. Um, there's uh, Software Corner. Um, and I'm sure there's plenty of others that we can perhaps put in the show notes together as a listing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that would be useful for people because there are, I mean, there are lots of... Um, companies have sprung onto this market since that uh, use of decision. I, I remember it was in July, and I was I was on holiday at the time, uh, and I remember coming back to work, and, and people were talking about this, and it, it really did kind of blow things open, and it was a very big talking point uh, during the, the last few months of 2012. Possibilities, man. So, so I hear of lots of these sites that are, that are brokers. So they'll they'll buy your surplus software off of you, uh, or they'll sell you somebody else's surplus software, and, and and we'll perhaps dig into exactly the sort of terms of how you can do that. Um, but what I don't see in the market at the moment, which I think is a bit of a hindrance to the secondary software market, is is good examples of what people have done with this. So you know, I think some some people that have read up on it, they they understand the concept, but 
there's a lot of talk about it and perhaps less action. Unless I'm, you know, prove me wrong. What 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 have you seen as examples of of this in the market? I think I can answer some of that, Christian, as, as well. Um, we are seeing some small activity. I admit uh, it, it isn't as widely known. That's one of the challenges. I think people aren't fully aware that they, that, that these things are possible. Christian mentioned there about uh, the example of, of books. Um, one of the more high-profile um, activities and organisations are making some waves in the ebook space and uh, online uh, e-movies is a, t- a Dutch company called Tom Cabinet. They've brought it to the consumer. I think when things are in the consumer domain, it becomes better known faster. Um, in the business domain, it can be more challenging to get known. However, when things start to move, they move a little quick, much more quickly. Yeah. Um, what we are seeing with the organizations we deal with, so many organizations we work with obviously are their IBM software users. Um, in many cases, the software, they may well end up moving to something else at some point because it's their twilight products or sunset products. And oftentimes they are over-licensed for some products uh, or will decommission the product. Um, we are currently seeing a number of those companies looking to those software marketplaces that you mentioned to look to see could they what value is available out there. Until such time though you have enough buyers and sellers, the market won't take off. Yeah. Okay. That is going to take a bit of time. The word is getting out there. Because, sorry to interrupt, but presumably these directories don't just buy your surplus software. They need to have a demand for it. They're not just going to buy you no. surplus. They they're, need, they're, 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 a, they're a exchange rather than a market. Correct. Yeah. They're, not, they're not buying your software from you. They are linking buyers and sellers. Yeah. Uh, they're not. They're, they're, they're more like eBay. Right. They're not. They're not taking. The, they're not tra- the traditional. What what we would term in the IT industry, the broker, where they will buy at X and sell it. Try and sell it at, at X plus a percentage in the marketplace, knowing there's demand. Yeah. They're they're taking a slice of the action. Um, so so do the do, forgive my ignorance here, but do these mar- markets also um, give you an indication of the likelihood of the somebody buying that? So for example, on the like you said on the consumer space. You can go to Music Magpie or Amazon and type in your book or your CD title. Hmm. And if there's a book on Amazon that's being sold for a penny, you know that there's not much demand there for your book. Whereas hmm. if it's selling for a tenner, then it's a good, you know, it's worth the effort of selling it. In, in a similar fashion, do these directories give you an indication of how much demand there's likely to be for, your, for that software? I don't think I don't think they're mature enough yet. Okay. So remember, but that would be a good indicator, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the, pur- the purpose of this podcast and this conversation we're having is to is to make people more aware of it. Uh, until you get significant both supply and demand, you won't get to see that. Yeah. So remember, some of these products. You just to finish, Christian. Yeah. Some of these products lend themselves to being sold on more more easily. Yeah. Um, all of the software publishers have their own way of measuring their software. In many cases, some of them have many, many ways. As I mentioned earlier, IBM have nearly 200 ways of measuring their software. Um, so you, you, you have to, there are certain rules and conditions around each publisher that, you, that they need to be understood by both the buyer and the seller and the marketplace. Yeah. And that's going to take a bit of time. Sorry, Christian. 
I just wanted to make a point there. I think you've you've covered it uh, in what you just said, um, Thomas. But um, there's kind of sliding scale between from very much productized software like Microsoft, um, you know, Microsoft Office. That that's a productized software that, that that you can buy off the shelf, and so that lends itself to you know selling it on fairly easily. And what I think. I don't want to talk for his business model, but I think Noel Ewing at Discount Licensing, I think that a lot of what he does is around Microsoft. And he's a good person to talk to about this because he was doing it way before uh, the use of the Oracle ruling. Um, and so I, I think uh, Discount Licensing and I think also Usesoft, uh, they do, what they do a lot of is buying up software from uh, companies that are going bankrupt. Uh, and they actually buy it. So that's not so much the eBay model, but more um, the broker model. Um, And then, but they will not buy obscure software products or or strange licenses. They're they're buying bog standard, uh, sorry, uh, Microsoft or, uh, you know, perhaps Adobe uh, or SAP, but they're not buying the more complex enterprise license products that have strange licensing model or metrics or anything like that. So that's where the market hasn't evolved to that stage yet. They're, they're only buying and selling and stuff that's easy to shift on. But could, could you imagine if you were a, a SAM consultant or you were sort of some sort of consultancy that could go into a company and say, if you show me, show me your usage data, I'll show you how much your kit is worth based on real demand. That would be really compelling, wouldn't it? If, if we could really, yeah, if, if yeah. and f- from my point of view, uh, a lot of what I do in software uh, negotiations uh, as a software procurement professional is like when we're looking at alternatives to a software product, uh, and the the organisation is saying, well, we could move from, for example, IBM to BMC, um, and often. It's difficult to make the business case because the IBM software is entrenched in the organisation. They're very much, um, you know, a, a, an integral part of uh, of what the organisation does, and they run their business on it. Um, so the, the hurdle to being able to make the business case is pretty high. But if you can get value for this, the licenses on the second-hand market, then that suddenly makes the business case a lot easier and therefore introduces more competition into the market. Mm-hmm. And I really think, you know, I commend the European Court of Justice for taking this stance because it, it is injecting uh, much more competition into the market and it's good for both buyers and sellers of, of uh, for, for users of, of software. So on that point, um, there is this thing about Yes, but we, I mean, you, we, we've got you on the call, Thomas, so we might as well focus on IBM. So I have a strategic relationship with IBM. I mm. can't, and this, you must have exactly the same argument with your business model, whereby we can't possibly put our maintenance with somebody else because we have a strategic relationship with IBM. Yeah. How do you address that? How do you counter that? Well, that, uh, not every company has a strategic relationship with IBM that we've come across. So there are. Sorry, but that that will be the argument for the account oh, manager, and that will be the fud that they will. And we're not. We're not. When we come into the picture, we're not changing that relationship with IBM. You still the companies we work with for maintenance. 
is often the transition they're making to maybe something else. So in many cases, they may well be changing their relationship with IBM or maybe moving away from IBM as, as IT is changing. In, our, in the way we work with, with IBM clients is that they are keeping their IBM software. So they're not changing the IBM software. It is changing one piece of their relationship with IBM and they are getting a better service at a lower price as, in, in return. So yes, we, we do occasionally hear people talking about that, but quite frankly, it's not a major issue for our clients, to be honest with you. Once they get their head around the fact that actually nothing is changing with regards to the software footprint. And for the point that Christian, on the same vein that Christian mentioned there, that when you are changing some of these products, and the reality is for companies like IBM, their business relationship is changing with many, many of their clients in any event, regardless of whether we're there or not. And it's happening very slowly, though, because to move away from these traditional software vendors is a time-consuming process. And it ultimately knocks on to why the second-hand market hasn't taken off yet. The supply isn't there because it can't just be turned on like a tap. It is a bit like the Titanic. It needs to move, and it is moving. You're starting to see elements of it come out in the marketplace. There are organizations who are getting rid of software. And we have companies who are, on the other hand, keeping the software maybe for a little bit longer, but are exposed maybe through an audit, which is increasingly part of the, of the business models of many of these of companies, including IBM. They need more software. The secondary market is giving them an avenue to procure the software that they need in a way that they never had an option before. Um, and I think that's to be welcomed, particularly here in Europe, that you can do that. But it takes time. Yeah. So we're not at a stage yet, today, where the, <coughs> the market is sufficiently developed because was, it just the time it takes from organizations to move off the software um, and the demand on the other side to, to need the software is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is a slow moving beast. So here's a, here's a tricky one for you. So, and, and, and Christian and Thomas, maybe you can both address this. So I was reading the Microsoft agreement a uh, sad individual that I am, uh, about their audit terms. And it was saying that if you were less than 5%, if you had a compliance gap of more than 5%, you had to pay a 125% penalty to fix the shortfall. Mm. Um, so we're, it's a bit of a sticky area to say, A, do I need to buy that shortfall from Microsoft directly? Perhaps not. And do I need to get maintenance or support for that? from Microsoft if it's a shortfall during an audit. So how does that work? Uh, quite simply. And, and where's you can answer that one, Christian. Go ahead. <laughs> that's... Uh, I would have to, I mean, that would be a negotiation. That If that's in Microsoft's standard terms, uh, then my advice would be to negotiate that as soon as they, um, as soon as they announce an audit because, you know, that's, that's pretty tough. Um... It's, it's almost the, it's, 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 uh, it's, just imagine the irritation factor to mention it <laughs> to say yes, yes we're short but we're going to buy software uh, to make us compliant but it's, you're not going to get any revenue yeah but, that, but, you're, but, it, but you're perfectly entitled to do that right the reality here is exactly. you, you, you need to be compliant from a licensing perspective yeah so if you're I mean unless there's a specific con it's in your contract if your contract says you've got to do something then you can't do it but in, in, in most cases, 
you are, and I can only talk about the, in an IBM world, you have a contract to use a certain number of licenses. If you are using more than that, you're not compliant, and you need to be. All companies need to be compliant. Where you source those licenses from, that's a different discussion. Yeah. You can choose to source them from the manufacturer or publisher, or you can choose to buy them in a second-hand market if they're available. Yeah. As long as the end of the day, you're compliant. I guess that smacks to the trend in the market, whereas all of the auditors, they're driven by revenue. They're not interested in reducing the compliance figures for their companies. That's not a, that's not a motive, no. is it? No. They don't want to say, we, we did have a 10% compliance rate, now we've got it down to 9, hooray. They don't, they're not wired like that, are they? No. 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 Okay. It's no, they're salesmen, they want to make money, they've got, they, they're, they're all, people think of auditors as being, you know, somehow expert in, in, in data mining and finding out exactly what software you're using. They're sales guys, with, and I've seen people who were responsible um, uh, for certain regions and accounts as salespeople one year, the next year they change job, they're ahead of compliance, but they're doing exactly the same thing. They're going around trying to drum up business. So yeah. and I think, know, this I think whole they, audit thing drives me crazy. And, uh, and they find that it's getting out of control. And uh, they know it as well, because the, the amount of X... The amount of ex-LMS and auditors that I've spoken to in the last, say, three months, and they all, they say, I used to be an auditor, and then they shudder, like, are you going to hit them or something? Like, you know, like, they're doing their penance, you know. Well, the, the funniest story I heard, when a number of my staff uh, in our Dublin office, go back a couple of years ago, uh, took, took jobs with Oracle, and uh, they, uh, I remember asking them, even them, out and about, and I said, what, what are you selling for Oracle? And they said, compliance solutions. <laughs> so I said, I didn't know. Uh, to which industries? Oh, every industry. I said, you mean you have a compliance solution for every industry? Well, are they compliant with our terms? <laughs> so they're, they're, I thought they were selling something for the financial services industry to make them compliant mm -hmm. in their, to the financial regulator. No, it was that they were selling more software. So there's, there's certain... Um, there's certain terms that we need to make make people aware of. You can't just sell any software. Um, and I think, Christian, haven't you got a handy acronym for this? To yeah, uh, I came up with the acronym UP. So Y-U-P-I-E. Uh, and it's fairly simple. It, it just goes through the three conditions that were set out in use of the Oracle. Um, the first one, you need to be able to prove... These are conditions in order to be able to sell software. So the first one, why, is you need to be able to prove that it's yours. Um, so you need to have a proof of purchase or an entitlement or to, to be able to show that the software is actually the software license is actually uh, yours to sell. Uh, secondly, you need to be able to show that you're no longer using it um, and so that it's been removed from your systems. Um, the third is a crucial one is it has to be a perpetual license. So it, it, this doesn't apply to subscription licensing, although it, it, uh, it could. Um, and the court uh, in the USOFT agreement uh, hinted that it might this might also apply to long-term subscription licenses, but nobody's tested that. Nobody's been back to the court to find out in such a case. So at the moment, it, it, everyone... Using your um, book, that's kind of uh, the standard. So, sorry to interrupt, Christian, but using yeah. your book analogy for perpetual licenses, is there a equivalent analogy we can use for a subscription license? That because you don't, 
You don't resell your gym membership, do you? Or do you? No, exactly. <laughs> or, or maybe a car. You know, I mean, a car. Uh, there are various ways to to have a car. You can either own it outright, or or you can lease it, or rent it, or, or whatever. There are a hundred different, hundred one different ways to um, uh, to finance or rent a car. Uh, the 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 um, the crucial point is who whose name is on the ownership document. Is it yours or is it a leasing company or a rental company? If it's yours, then you can sell it, right? Uh, if 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 you're renting a car from Avis or Hertz and you sell it, then you, you're going to have a problem on your hands because you're you're not entitled to sell that. So so that's uh, a bit the um, the. Uh, analogy that you can you can draw there to, to see whether it's perpetual or not a perpetual license means that you can use the software forever um, as, as long as you're paying maintenance you get upgrades and any newly released IP that the uh, software provider um, provides as part of their maintenance um, uh, program but um, and if you stop paying maintenance, then you stop getting those upgrades. But the actual software product itself, you can continue to use that for forever. So that's what you're entitled to sell. So we we got to yup so far, I think. So you're, it's yours. You you're not using it anymore, and it's perpetual. What's what's the last one of the acronym? The last two are, are the first one. The, the, the second last one is uh, I, which is um, indivisible. So. In the use of judgment, the court made it clear that if you're buying bundles of licenses, you cannot divide up that bundle and sell it on. So the example of this would be, you know, for example, you buy um, a license for 100 seats and you only need 70 of them, but you, you can't just sell off 30 because that's not the product that you bought. You bought a product that was 100 seats. So if that's, you know, if the product is a bundle of licenses, you're not allowed to carve that bundle up and sell it. Could I just yeah. touch on that whilst we got Thomas here as well, because this relates to maintenance as well, mm. in, about being indivisible. Because this is a classic trick, isn't it? To say, I'm going to sell you a bundle of products with a maintenance contract for that bundle. Mm. Uh, and then the, the customer comes back and says... Uh, I, you know, I'm being diligent. I'm being a good consumer. I don't need that application anymore. I want to drop it from that, you know, from that bundle. Yeah. Uh, but the, the effectively, you can't, or you you're not going to save any money by doing so because the vendor won't allow you. Mm. So is that the same sort of thing we mean in terms of indivisible? We don't we don't see that as a problem in the maintenance world because um, in in in, a, in very rare occasions there are some l- large outsource contracts or major contracts or mainframe clients would have contracts known as SO agreements that might have some element of that, but they'd be generally bespoke. So in general, it is quite, IBM, and, and in, the, in the IBM's case, it's quite clear that the license is quite separate to the support, and, what they call support and subscription. They're both sold as separate entities and they're not bundled together. Right. Okay. So the licenses are perpetual. And therefore, uh, yeah, yours and you. While you have a maintenance contract, you have certain entitlements. So the what 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 Christian is describing there, and particularly, uh, they're yours. They you have an entitlement for the license, but also the entitlement for what comes with the contract. Now, every publisher may have different terms. What comes with the contract, the support contract, and there may be different things that expire. 
when the contract ends that may not expire in other contracts. So obviously we only know IBM, we haven't around investigating everybody's contracts. So we know what our, our customers are entitled to um, under, on, under that perpetual license agreement. Cool, okay. And I think we've got one left on the acronym, Christian. Yeah, the last one's very simple, or at least on paper it seems so. It's um, E, which means that uh, the first sale must have taken place in the European Economic Area, which, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is all of the 20 EU states plus Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway. And that, yeah, it seems simple, but there's a point here that it might be uh, difficult for large multinationals who are signing uh, global agreements, which are often the case. Um, they're paying for their software in dollars in California, for example, and yet they're deploying it across Europe. And that, that it's not quite clear, you know, what, what that means. First sale is in the European Economic Area. I haven't seen any legal challenges to, to that. So but for a lot of companies, that would be simple, you know, if they, if they raised the purchase order and received an invoice in the UK, then that's clearly in scope, right? Yeah. You would have thought, I mean, generally, I see, this might be naive, I'm happy to take your correction here, but I see the US as more of a free market anyway. And I would have thought, I'm surprised that some entrepreneur hasn't come up with a market over there anyway. Regard, uh, it, yes, there isn't the same level of ruling that we've had in Europe, but they're much more open to free market in the US than they are in Europe, I would have thought. They are, but they also have a very, very strong uh, uh, software industry to protect. Yeah. Um, there was a case, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, I think it was in Texas, but it didn't get any further than uh, than the local state um, courts, so it didn't go to the US Supreme Court. It would be very interesting to see how the US Supreme Court would rule on a case such as use of the Oracle. Um, I think they would protect their home market. Um, you know, Microsoft, IBM, HP, yeah, BMC, all, all the big uh, Oracle, not to forget. Um, you know, all the big software vendors are, are American. Uh, where, where did uh, where did Microsoft's uh, Microsoft big uh, antitrust thing around Internet Explorer? Where did that come from? That, that was a uh, um, was around bundling. U that was US based. No, it was around. It was around bundling. I mean, if you mentioned bundling to a Microsoft person, they would say they would they run a mile. I mean, as in what country kicked that off? Was it a US based? That was no. That was the European Commission that brought that against Microsoft. In the same way, they're challenging Google now. They challenged Microsoft over what they what they perceive as anti-competitive practice of bundling their Internet Explorer browser with the operating system when there were other competitor products um, and they had, they had the dominant position in the uh, operating system for desktops. So, yeah, I think, um, I think the, ra the rabbit hole goes a lot deeper than that with Google as well. There's lots of other stuff there. Well, yes, <laughs> yeah. Lots yeah. of other mud. Yes, bit. indeed. Okay. But what, one point to, to raise as well around, uh, I, I love your acronym, UP, uh, Christian, is also, I think in so because software is far less a tangible uh, product per se, uh, I think provenance is crucial here. So understanding what you, and this is pretty important for listeners to know what they understand, keep very sound records of what they bought, where they bought it, 
how long they've had maintenance on the product and what entitlements and contracts came with that. Um, uh, that's if they want to sell it on, they're going to have to know all of that. This isn't because it's not a physical product that people can go along and, and kick the tires. You can't kick the tires of software. Yeah. You have to have the paper trail. Um, and, and, and just on that point, I mean, it's worth noting um, that no account manager at this software companies or um, uh, you know, no, nobody's going to encourage you to do this from the software from the software game, are they? They're, you know, if you're going to buy if, you, if you're going to buy a book, you're not going to be approach a bookstore and then the bookstore guy says, "Well, why don't you buy the second hand one over there?" You know, the, the software companies are not going to encourage you to do this. You've got to go out and find these these um, listings and these directory yeah. sites. But just as just to wrap things up, yeah. guys, to, to wrap things up, what 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 does this market need? to progress what does it need to for more organizations to take advantage of this do you think i think that uh, it, it needs um the authorities to step in and 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 provide a framework and what you were saying just a second ago about you know, um uh, thomas about where the license has come from being able to prove that it's yours why couldn't we have in the European Economic Area, a, a little bit like a land registry, or you know, we have those for land, we have and housing, and uh, you know, real property. You cannot. Uh, there's a, a, a registry in each country that says who, which, what belongs to who. Um, the same is true for cars. Um, why can't we have such a thing for software licenses, where it's independently monitored, and people register their right to use a software product with an independent body and when they want to sell it that that independent body records the sale and keeps everything uh, keeps the inventory of everyone's software um, it's not something that's you know in the past we could maybe claim that it was an administrative nightmare and wouldn't be possible to keep track of with the current computing capabilities that's not an excuse anymore this this would be something that uh, an organization like the European Commission could uh, uh, could attempt to put in place. I think you're onto something there. Yeah. I I I recently discovered through my own um, personal pain that there's actually a directory of every single gas connection in the UK as well. So that if I'm if I'm swapping between one provider and another, they've got a single point of reference in an independent directory so that the bat the baton get doesn't get dropped yeah. basically. So that yeah. So okay. And I think what you what you also need is you need people to go out and do it. People who actually go out and put their software in the marketplace, there is value in it. Uh, the business will get get the money from it. Um, it'll stimulate the market. It'll create more value, more demand, and we need people to just go out and do it. People not to be afraid. This is an established legal environment. It's not something you're going to hear from your software vendor naturally. It's like the second-hand book example you gave earlier. You're not going to get. A second-hand books, uh, primary market bookseller selling second-hand books. But we suggest people go out and do it. Once they start to do it, they will see the benefits. And once that happens, it will stimulate the market and create massive value. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your time. I hope uh, listeners found that valuable. And we'll try to cram in as many links and resources and direct, you know, these uh, second-hand market directories on the show notes as we can. And if anyone has any other feedback about this process or any other directories, please let us know and we'll add them to the list. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Thanks, Martin.